Hey everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast. Mike, Erie, Tim Stafford coming at you. Grateful for you. Thank you for tuning in. A um, couple of things. First of all, Tim, how you doing? How's the beard? How's the long I'm doing, hair? I'm doing well. Yeah? The beard and the long hair are helping out because fall has finally arrived in Northern California. So Are things still on fire? I'm feeling cozy. Are things still on fire? Uh, no, I think the air quality index was at like 30 or something today. It was like in the green. So the so lower it is, uh, the better, or the higher it is, the better. Yeah, the high, the lower it is, the better, and then the higher it gets. Like for a while, like in Yosemite, when the fire was over there, it was at like some crazy number, it was like seven hundred. It was like don't breathe. Yeah, don't go anywhere near this area. So dang, we're coming out of it. Okay, and um, you, like one crisis averted. <laughs> Now on to the pandemic. Well, the 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 really sad part is that every year now, um, California yeah. burns this time of, you know this time of year, and it seems like it's yeah. getting worse and worse. Yeah. So crisis averted for the next nine months. It's one of those things where partisan politics has made something has has made something um, in incurable. <laughs> is that a word? Yeah. Yeah. Seems that way. Um, so friends, we have been marching through the Sermon on the Mount and marching and more of a, uh, maybe a meander, less, less of a march. But, um, as we record today, we are two Mondays away from election day. So we, uh, are going to pause on the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to do two episodes on, um, political issues from slightly different perspectives. Uh, today... We are speaking with a young woman named Caitlin, let's see, Shess is how you Shess. pronounce it, Shess. Um, and she is the author of a book called The Liturgy of Politics, which that title had me already. Um, <laughs> and uh, my goodness, she is unbelievably sharp. The book, the book really is excellent. Uh, but our interview with her, I mean... It's so dumb because I hate I hate when interviewers someone gets done ask answering a question and the interviewer is just stumped and has to say that was amazing, um, and <laughs> and I did that several several times and I just feel so um, I don't know unprofessional or whatever because I'm just like oh my goodness that was so good and and I I forget that I'm an interviewer and I'm just sitting and listening and learning. And yeah. so she had a couple of riffs where I, she'll just end and I'm like, uh, wow. Well, she's the type of <clears throat> author too. Every now and then we'll have a, and I won't name names or even topics, but every now and then we'll have a book author on. And if you try to ask them a question in which they, uh, you're asking them to respond through the lens of what they've written about, they sometimes can't and just requote a section of their book. Yeah. Whereas Caitlin, like no matter what, side topic came up she had a wealth of knowledge in her brain ready to was, unleash which was just it was disgusting so. um <laughs> so you know um we know we know yeah yeah she's just she's she was just incredible so the book's really good the interview's great but it's about the formative nature of the political environment beyond just how we're formed by policies and um and candidates and, um, and so I really think there's a lot of good, healthy stuff about how it is that we engage politically beyond the voting booth, uh, because that yeah. happens once every two or four years. And here we are. 
um, we we arrive at these moments wondering, okay, well, how come, you know, if 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 we supposedly as Christians believe this, then why are we willing to put up with that? And her answer is going to be, well, it's because we've been formed during those four years into certain kinds yeah. of people who will hear and see and read certain kinds of ways. So um, anyway, we hope you enjoy the interview. One quick thing before we start, um, I have to thank Luke and Tyrone and Peter and Erica and John and Annie for joining our Patreon team. Unbelievable how gracious and generous you all are. It is helpful to us. The podcast is free and always will be free. It costs us, though, to make it. And so this is incredibly helpful that you would do this. You can go to patreon.com and type in Vox Podcast or Mike Erie. Um, or you could go um, to our website, voxpodcast.com. There's a link to a platform called Tithely, which um, is, is a little better suited to sort of one-time gifts. Um, and either either platform, um, it's tax deductible and hugely, hugely appreciated. And it makes possible stuff like this. So uh, anyway, here's Caitlin. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, everybody. Mike and Tim here with our special guest, Caitlin Shess. And I said it right, S-C-H-I-E-S-S. And Caitlin has, wrote, uh, has written a book called The Liturgy of Politics. And, um, and it's what I've heard a lot about. Some friends have read. Uh, I was able to pick it up, but she graciously agreed to be with us, even though she is facing a paper on Augustine's sermon on Psalm 2 later today. Uh, she is making room for the Vox podcast. So, Caitlin, hello. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for asking me. Uh, liturgy and politics don't usually go together in the same sentence. And so, mm-hmm. uh, for, I mean, that's absolutely compelling, uh, a compelling uh, juxtaposition of words. How do you mean them each, if we could just start there? Yeah, yeah. I like to joke that my publisher just thought we would put like two really controversial words together and then like people would want to buy the book. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I use the word liturgy and the word politics more broadly than most people do. Um, so liturgy, including the liturgy of the church, the way a lot of us in some traditions think about it when it comes to prayers or, or kind of uh, rhythms of speaking or singing, um, kind of the sitting up and, and stand, standing up and sitting down, uh, the Eucharist, baptism, all those kinds of things, but also more broadly to think about just all of the things in our life that are repetitive embodied habits that impart some value or meaning to us. And those can include all sorts of political things like mm-hmm. our social media, our media consumption habits. If we go to protests or rallies or speeches, all those kinds of things are, are really affectively formative in us in a way that liturgies broadly are. And yes. then yes. politics, not just meaning you know, statecraft, who we elect and, and the legislation we pass and all of those things are very central to it. But more broadly thinking of it in terms of just the way that we build a common life together. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Luke Brotherton, talks about how politics is the forming, norming and sustaining of our common life together. And I like that because forming to me sounds like 
okay, we need laws, we need like a structure, we need a constitution. Norming is like, well, we have stories and feelings and pictures of what life should be like that justify those structures that like give them meaning and, and are reasons why we stick to them. Um, even right now in our political system, we're seeing things that we thought were norms that were really strong and actually they can kind of fall apart pretty quickly. And so all of those things are what makes politics, not just kind of the literal rules or the constitution. Um, and for individuals, that means it's not just the way you vote or if you write a letter or make a phone call to elected representatives, but also just, I mean, the grocery store you choose to shop at and the school you send your kids to and the way you interact with your neighbors, all of those are, are part of what it means to be engaged in politics. So liturgy is a very rich word that has to do with how we're formed as people. Mm -hmm. And, and a, a central point to your book, of course, is that formation happens outside of, quote, spiritual environments and outside yeah. of, quote, political environments. So uh, liturgies can be family liturgies. You can have so uh, social liturgies. You could, I mean, it literally is literally, uh, liturgy is any formative practice. And it seems like your concern, your central concern, or one of them anyway, is about the, the peculiar role that politics plays in the formative process. In other words, we, at least I always understood politics as this little tiny segment of my life over here that had to do with how I voted. Yeah. You have a much broader concern um, with how politics forms us. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So I think a lot of us tend to think of it that way, especially during an election year. We'll be like, okay, well, we have these few months where we have to think about it all the time and we have to figure out who we're voting for. And then the rest of the time, we're not really doing anything, um, which not only is not true when it comes to like midterm elections and like other ways that we could be involved, like writing letters and phone calls, but it also just ignores the fact that um, the whole time leading up to that election, the last four years that maybe you thought you were less politically involved than you will be when you go and fill out a ballot, you know, in a couple of days or even right now, um, those other things, consuming media, having conversations with people, um, even watching like TV shows and movies that we think like, well, that's not political, but there are stories that are, are deeply formative in those things that shape us in how we interact with the world. And so even things like, you know, a really patriotic movie, for example, that like mm. you might think this has nothing to do with politics, but it shapes your heart to desire not just the good of your country, maybe above all else, but a certain kind of picture of that good that kind of comes with mm. other ideas about maybe for Americans, individualism or freedom that looks like um, an absence of restraints and not, you know, freedom to right. certain good things, like all of these different ideas that right. we think that those are not forming us politically. But when you go into, you know, do your ballot, there's all those stories kind of humming underneath your everyday life. And then the like the thing that frightens me and the reason why I think pastors and Christians in general, people in, in especially positions of leadership have to talk about this, is it doesn't just form the way you vote. And that's significant in and of itself. But mm. then it forms the way that you do all sorts of other things in your life. And so I'm thinking about in churches, we might go, okay, well, we hypothetically don't care what happens, you know, when you go vote. But we do care what happens when you go and serve the community with us, when you come out and like go to a soup kitchen or whatever. Those ideas about wealth and poverty and autonomy and individualism, those work their way into the way that we form the like committee at the church that decides how to do service. That forms the individual person that goes out and might have a posture towards someone who's impoverished or who someone's, who's not like them, that is informed by all of that political formation they've been having. And yet the conversation that we tend to have in the church is like, okay, 
every four years, we won't, usually the pastor won't do this. I'm doing a lot of this right now. You know, someone will call me in and be like, can you say some stuff? You know, hopefully so that they don't get too much blowback. You know, I can say right. something, right. but, but that misses the fact that for all of the time we haven't been talking about it, people have been really deeply formed by all sorts of, you know, media consumption conversations, all that stuff. And that has formed them in spiritual ways that are quite dangerous. And we've kind of abdicated a responsibility to do anything about that. Oh, Caitlin, that's so good. Because I, because it seems like one of the things that you're really trying to wrestle with is why is it that, that most, quote, evangelicals would say, well, of course we're pro-life, but then we would come out and be a group heavily in favor of torture um, or um, yeah. not uh, uh, unjust or not compassionate immigration responses. What, why that juxtaposition? And one of the things you seem to be suggesting is, well, we're being politically formed way beyond policy discussions and uh, yeah. and voting forums. We're being politically formed even by our entertainment. Um, mm -hmm. Like the myth of redemptive violence is just mm -hmm. constantly held out before us or individualism or consumption, as you say. Yeah. Uh, um, what do you see when, because I, you know, the biblical, I always thought that a Christian's political involvement was finding the biblical position on social issues and mm -hmm. then you vote for the candidate that espouses allegiance to those positions. And it seems like you're suggesting it's way more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just even initially hearing that, that very well describes how I grew up and the things that I heard in church as well. Um, one of the immediate problems with that is the question of what kind of... Um, things you espouse versus things you actively work towards, things mm. that you use as kind of a marker of what community you belong to or the identity that you have. A lot of evangelicals have this really deep sense that when I vote, I am making kind of a sign of who I am and the values that I have independent of like actual issues in the world. It just has to show here are the things that I care about. Here are the morals that I hold. Mm -hmm. And then we translate that as well to politicians. It's like, well, if they just check all of the boxes, they say all of the right things. It's really more about, ironically, <laughs> we, we make a big deal right now about virtue signaling. Weirdly mm -hmm. enough, that's kind of how we tend to think about politicians and voting. It's like, do you totally. just show that these are the things that you care about? Right. Um, and so not only does that kind of ignore the question of like, what are like practically what's happening when, when mm -hmm. someone votes, what's practically happening when a politician says some things and acts differently. Um, but even more than that, I think, part of what has happened is a lot of Christians have a certain set of values and ideas that we just assume are biblical because mm. we've been swimming in the same water for a long time. I mean, if you were to go to someone at an evangelical church in Dallas, for example, if you were to go to someone in my church and you were to say, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is that like a biblical idea? A lot of people would say yes. They'd be like, well, yeah, that, that fits kind of maybe some cherry picked Bible verses that were taken to kind of support a political position we already had to kind of support things against, you know, a social safety net, welfare policy, stuff like that. Um, and also just kind of like cherry picking in all sorts of other ways. And then we end up in a position where we've slapped the label biblical on it and no one can question that right. because, you know, I got the voting guide from the Christian group and it said, here's all the things, you know, instead of recognizing that the actual reality is so much more complicated than that, partially mm -hmm. because there are Bible verses you can find often in Proverbs about the value of hard work. And right. then you can find so many things in the Old Testament, so many things in the New Testament about, you know, 
the, the rich oppressing the poor and the need for justice and the way that God's people in particular have often perpetuated that and have to be, you know, prophetically called back to what their real identity and community are and, and their, their position for the good of their neighbors and the, and the life of the world. And so that's a lot harder for a church on a Sunday morning to do a quick little, hey, we're going to talk about politics. It's a lot easier to be like, here are Republican talking points that are unoffensive to basically everyone in this community. Let's pull some Bible verses that go with it. What would be a lot harder would be, and what I would like to see churches do is say, could we spend a bunch of weeks? Could we even maybe say all of our sermons are politically involved? And so we tell a really attractive, captivating story about God's plan of redemption throughout history, our role in it, the orientation of his people to seek the good of their communities from beginning of Genesis to the end of revelation and then have really hard conversations about how that specifically works out in policies but acknowledge that first and foremost is this robustly theological account of our role in the world and not a simple you know here are bible verses that go along with some positions we already agree with yes oh preach on my sister dang well said <laughs> um one of the things that you you explore just a little bit at the beginning of the book is the wedding uh, at least in the minds of a lot of us, of Republican policies and sort of a Christian position. And mm-hmm. um, and, and although your critique is much, it, it can be applied to any wedding of or fusing of yeah. a political po- policy with the kingdom. But one of the things that I really liked um, or thought was provoking was that you said perhaps the problem with too closely aligning our faith in a particular strain of conservative politics isn't that the movement was too political, because I think that's what a lot of us think. What well, was way too political? We got to get yeah. out of that. But you say rather that it's not that it was a, uh, too political. It, that it's <laughs> let me butcher that even more. But perhaps I'll just give you the whole quote. The problem with too closely aligning our faith and particular strain of conservative politics isn't that the movement was too political, but that it wasn't political enough. And I, I sense in your previous answer. Uh, the beginning of how you would describe what political enough means. Could you expand mm-hmm. on that just a little bit? Because I think when we hear political, we think partisan, uh, and, yeah. and you mean something far deeper and richer. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people could read stuff in my book and be like, uh, I don't want my pastor to get up in the pulpit and say, vote for this person or support this. And that is not what it means for them to really have a political perspective on the world and to preach the truth of the gospel that is inherently political, which is to say it lays claim on every aspect of our life. It requires that we interact with our neighbors, that our budgets, that our families look different than it would have if we weren't you know, receivers of this gospel. And I think the reason I would say it hasn't been you know, sufficiently political is because we have really kind of outsourced our responsibility to fully form and educate people in that life in the world that they are supposed to have and said, you can watch Fox News, you can get on social media, you can you know, be a part of all of these other things. They will sufficiently inform and form you to be right. engaged politically. And by actually, I, I was just having a conversation with a reporter the other day who said, you know, I think a lot of progressive, more liberal people think that in conservative churches a pastor is getting up and saying vote for trump and there are some like really public examples of that but for the most part that's not true and she was trying to figure out like well then what is it and i i said it's that we there are certain things you're allowed to say and certain things that you're not and so when you come up against a passage Mm -hmm. that might step on some political toes 
you're not going to say robustly, like, this is really what it means, right? Like, I've heard so many sermons <laughs> about, especially wealth and poverty, that we're so careful to say, like, this is all of the stuff this doesn't mean. And this doesn't mean that you're bad if you have a lot of money. And it doesn't mean, like, trying so hard to, like, make people feel comfortable in a way that they would never do if the passage was about sexual ethics. Like, there's no way they would be like, don't worry, it doesn't mean, you know, as much right. as you think it means. And so that's the kind of thing where, we're willing to step on maybe some more liberal, more progressive political toes. We're not mm -hmm. really willing to step on the more conservative political toes. And for a really robust presentation of what the gospel means in our everyday public lives, it will require that you step on everyone's political toes mm. and that you're willing to confront, especially what has happened historically. So for um, a lot of evangelical churches, I think right now, even the ones that are recognizing this, you know, unbalanced relationship, this verging on idolatrous relationship with the Republican Party. They want to make real, real certain to call out both sides. And there's a place for that. The problem is when you, when you recognize what's actually captivating the hearts of your people, the idol that is specifically hurting them, mm -hmm. sometimes you have to keep your focus on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you can't just say, yes, you could have a bad relationship with the Democratic Party too. We can get there. Like if that becomes an issue, we can deal with that for right now you might be making people feel a little too comfortable <laughs> by calling out both sides. You might really need to say, oh. hey, for us in this moment, the problem is this one thing. And I don't mm. want to kind of give you any room <laughs> in, your, in your own convicted heart to say, oh, well, I'm somewhere in the middle because everyone thinks that. You know, everyone right. thinks they're kind of moderate. Mm. They're kind of in the middle. Mm. Um, evangelical churches in America, historically, we know, have had this kind of, both statistically and theologically, this really connected relationship with the Republican Party. And so if that needs to be the focus in a lot of the church, those churches for a while, I think that's being faithful to what, you know, prophets and priests in Israel and, and, and people, leaders in, in the early church were trying to do, which is say, in my context, this is the problem I have to call it out. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, Jeremiah is like calling out the people over and over and over again, there are voices I'm sure that are like, well, the Babylonians are bad too. And it's like, yeah, but you are God's people. <laughs> like right. I'm calling out the sin I see among you. They've got their own issues, but that's not really my job. Mm, wow. Um, I do think, and I'm, I'd be one of those people that, that try to show the kingdom indicts both mm. all politics equally. Yeah. And your counter to that would be, yeah, but, but we're not susceptible as particularly to one version of that, as opposed yeah. to the other right now. What is it, uh, when you speak of the idolatrous pull of political engagement, um, what's the language that sits behind that? What what is it that 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 uh, causes our political affiliations to become, uh, in your words, ultimate instead of penultimate? What is it that draws us there? Yeah, does that, does I mean, that question think, make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's interesting because a lot of us in the church love talking about idols. <laughs> like we love being like, oh, this could be an idol. This could be an idol. Totally. Sometimes we stretch that language to places that it doesn't make sense. Like you could love reading books too much. And I might, because sometimes <laughs> I don't do other things I should do. I don't know that that's like an idolatrous relationship kind of thing. Um, because the way that idols are described in scripture is requiring sacrifices from you, mm. requiring your ultimate allegiance and affection, and then making promises that they tend to not fulfill, but still require more and more sacrifice from you. Mm. And the reason that politics uniquely does that is, of course, <laughs> in a democracy, in a republic like we have, the people that are trying to get your vote are going to make really grandiose promises of protection and provision, the kind of promises that sound 
messianic that sound like only God could provide. And Mm -hmm. those are the kind of promises that are never just conveyed to us in propositional terms. You know, they might get up in, in a speech and say, you know, I will make America great again, or I will bring, you know, money back to the country, or I will bring jobs back, or I will, but but that's not usually the thing that really captivates people's hearts. You know, mm-hmm. the people in my community that are Biden supporters or Trump supporters, like the thing that has captivated their hearts is not usually the slogan. What it's is it? usually, it's the affective story that has been communicated in things like campaign ads, in mm-hmm. things like speeches, but also in images and stories that they hear in social media and in the news. So when I, you know, when someone turns the news on or for, to be honest, what's, you know, more bias tends to be on it, like Facebook or social media, they see a story that confirms the larger story that they have already kind of assented to because it's pulled on their heartstrings. An example would be, um, I have to protect my community from these riots that are happening around the country. Mm-hmm. And so when I scroll through Facebook and I see repeatedly because of the kind of siloing that social media does to us, or because of our own preferences, we've selected certain media to consume that confirms our biases. I see over and over and over again, if all I saw were like written posts that said, riots are coming to your city and you know biden wants them to to come and destroy your white picket fence family that would be like kind of scary in a in a cognitive sense but like you could keep scrolling off that but if you're scrolling and you see really dark frightening images of actual riots and fires burning and you see you know contrasted with pictures of neighborhoods that look like yours and then you see another image of a really destroyed neighborhood that does something both psychologically and physiologically to you and the way that fear operates in your body like means that you will try and protect yourself even on a level that you might not recognize you're feeling and so that's the kind of language and framework that politics operates in. So of course it would be much more formative on us than like a warning on my toothpaste label that I might read them, you know, things like that, that are like right. other messages that we're getting are not as powerful or not as communicated in such an ultimate way. And yet we don't kind of give them the credit for being as formative as they are. We think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have to address the fact that my congregation is only consuming one-sided media or whatever, but we don't go, Oh, they're consuming something that is literally shaping their hearts to love a different story counter to the gospel, a Come kingdom on. that is not the kingdom of God, those kinds of things. We, we kind of think we can treat it as like an extracurricular Sunday school moment mm. or like someone else comes in and talks about it. If this was the kind of serious spiritual threat to your people that I think it is, you would be preaching on it every Sunday, but we don't treat it like it is. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Caitlin, um, yes. Oh, that's so good. Is it tough? Is it tough being this smart and articulate? That's what I want to know. Um, Tim and I have never struggled with that, but my goodness. Um, you identify four competing stories, four competing gospels, and I know a lot of interviews you've done kind of zero in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the gospels of prosperity, but not in the christian sense in the you can make it american dream sense yeah the patriotic gospel right the 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 state will keep us safe which it seems like a version also of the security gospel mm-hmm. that my goal is comfort and then the white supremacy gospel uh and and as i was kind of reading them i'm thinking well those for me those are all webbed together into one yeah. they, i couldn't separate them out Right, the one, the big hairball of my American dream includes all of those yeah. facets. How do we, unless you want to speak to the specifics on that, the question I, I want to ask is, well, then how do we counter program? Mm-hmm. Um, if if because 
obviously what we're doing isn't working, right? So we're having 35 minute sermons, loads of podcasts, um, and, and, you know, Bible studies and, um, uh, prayer meetings. And, and, and for some of us, uh, and maybe more than we would ever recognize, you know, we've been able to, uh, stay faithful to the kingdom and its embodiment in the crucified Christ. Uh, but there seems like there are whole swaths of others. Uh, and again, it's easy to put myself in the good category and not in the bad one. Um, who, who, um, really struggle with being pulled in the directions uh, that culture's pulling us. And so how do we, in, in a non-cliched, non-sort of, well, here's just another small group curriculum that we do, mm-hmm. how do we counter-program against some of this? Yeah, um, one of the like really formative moments that stuck out to me when I was early in seminary was I was taking a class on spiritual formation throughout history and like the ways people have been formed, like the practices they've had that have changed. We talked about like the mystics and monastics and and all the way through like the Methodists, the way they thought about things. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment where we were talking about the early church and we were talking about all of these really incredible things that they did uh, when it came to taking care of the poor, the marginalized, kind of just abolishing these really, you know, important markers of status in their culture. And one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about was the fact that they cared for people's bodies after they died, that if you weren't wealthy mm. enough, your body could just be left in the street dishonored in a really serious way. And and that mattered even more to them in their context. And so Christians would go and bury people's bodies. Mm. And there was a guy in the class who raised his hand and basically was like, so I'm trying to imagine like translating that to our culture. And he was like, if we in a church wanted to do something like that, we would set up like the body burying committee. (laughs) Like we would be like, okay, (laughs) let's like get a bunch of people to do this. And he was like, but that doesn't seem to be how they did that. Like I, and I also think if we did that, no one would sign up for it. Like that's just not, It was such a good picture to me of this was a community very early on. And and we can romanticize the early church. They obviously had their own problems. There's all the epistles to prove it. But there there was this real sense of eating together, worshiping together, having a very strong sense of your primary identity and community being in the redeemed people of God that had a new mission to bring glimpses of the kingdom of God to their particular context. And the automatic outworking of that would be things like, hey, here is a material need that is not being filled by the people who were supposed to fill it, right? There are leaders in our community that are that are not part of the church that they could see that as a need to be filled, but they're not. And we see not just the spiritual needs of the people in our community, but the physical needs of people in our community as central to who we are. And mm-hmm. so we're gonna go out and do this thing. And it was a picture to me of like, similarly, when we're in this political moment where we go, how do we untangle these these issues. How do we untangle the fact that if we did create a body burying committee, no one would sign up for it because those are just not the things that matter in our communities. I don't think the answer is a series of sermons or a Bible study lesson, um, partially because people, (laughs) sin is fundamentally self-deceptive and we are really good at justifying ourselves. And the more (laughs) formative thing I think would be for us to say, how are the songs that we're singing the habits and practices, both personally and communally that we have, how are the way that we're practicing the Eucharist and baptism? How are the, you know, kind of prayers that we're praying, even if you're not in a community that does written prayers, we say the same thing Mm -hmm. over and over and over again by habit. How can we really reflect on those kinds of things that are really formative and say, how could we, like, just to take this very practical example, what would it look like for the songs we sang, the words we used repeatedly, the way we understood the formative you know, power of the Eucharist and baptism, how could all of those things form us into the kind of people 
where if it was a problem in our community for people's for people's bodies to be buried, we would be the people who didn't need to create a committee. We just naturally did it. Mm. But instead, we tend to think we are a business. <laughs> we are mm. like a institution, just like every other institution. And so if we see a problem, we create a committee, we create a sign up list. And, all, and those things are not bad. They are functional and they're good. Yeah. But how could we really reflect better on how are we being formed in such a way so that we naturally live out the truth of the gospel in our communities? Yeah. And and in your book is like, that's the whole, really, it seems like the last third mm-hmm. is how do we counter program? Yeah. Um, before you get to, before you get unleashed on Augustine and Psalm <laughs> two, um, my experience as a 20 something, uh, cause we're all 20 somethings here. Um, is that there seems to be a very, a very distinct generational gap in the practice and understanding of politics right now. Mm-hmm. Um, based on what you're seeing, feeling, have written, how would you address each generation in turn? So what would you say to the boomers who are very fearful, um, at least many in my experience, um, who look at the world and see such dramatic change and cannot help but yearn for simpler days? What do you say to the to the the Xers like myself, who are just so fed up with the whole freaking thing? Um, I'd rather go, you know, I'd rather just go to Tahiti and uh, let the world just sort of take care of itself. What do you say then to the 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 generations that are coming of which you are a part? Um, what are the correctives maybe that you would offer just briefly to each of those groups? You know, not to, not to have like a total cop out, but I do, I do think, I think I would say one thing to all of them, but it would probably mean something different to each of them, which is that, um, we need to be reminded that our narrow expression of the Christian faith in predominantly white evangelical churches in America is that narrow, you know, historically, culturally, politically contextualized expression that is not representative, is is so far from representative of how Christians have practiced their faith throughout history and around the globe. And that getting ourselves outside of that mindset for some for some generations might be a necessary corrective in a, in a kind of convicting way. Um, for other generations, like I think my own, it might be sort of comforting <laughs> to feel like if this isn't all that it is, then maybe this thing crumbling is not the end of the world. Um, and, and for those who feel like holding on to the thing that is crumbling, to remember that this is not the faith. This particular expression of the faith, this particular institution that I grew up loving, this particular church that I think is really great, it crumbling is not the crumbling of the faith. And that rooting ourselves in the way Christians have worshipped and spoke and theologized throughout history and around the world will make us better able to, I think, move forward instead of doing what I think maybe my generation wants to do, which is sometimes let's just start all over and do our, our whole own new thing. Our elders got it wrong, so let's just fix it. And we know best like how to fix it, which is not just my generation's problem. That's an age of being, you know, 20-something problem. Um, and then also addressing older generations who might either be fearful of what's happening or fed up with it or any of those things to say, the answer is not 
holding on to everything as it has been. And neither is it abandoning the faith for something else. It is recognizing that the faith is not this thing that we're either abandoning or holding on to. It's something wider and more beautiful and expressed in all sorts of different ways throughout history and time. And that's a better foundation and something that is more faithful to how, to how those Christians saw themselves as inheritors of a faith larger than themselves from people that were not like them and recognizing that as opposed to holding on to this one particular expression. No, well done. Excellent. Where can people find you online, Caitlin? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Chess. And if you go to CaitlinChess.com, you can find some links to get the book or some, I just wrote some prayers and practices for the election season, if that's interesting. I love that. It is interesting. Thank you. And and great luck to you on, on your paper. Thanks for taking time. Really, the book was Thanks. very well done. Enjoyed it very much. Hope Thank you have you. a great day. All right. Thanks. You guys too. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxpodcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash voxpodcast. On Instagram, at Fox Podcast, and on Twitter, at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.